So we'll begin tonight by reflecting once again about the different perspectives on patience. For example, sitting here now, we all, in our minds, we all have different stories about what's happening, about whether we've had a good day or not, or about how we're doing right now. But if just in a moment we're able to uh, look beyond those stories or not be caught in those stories, it's possible to discover that the moment is okay, not theoretically okay, but that this moment, the way that it is, is really okay. So, in a deeper sense, the essence of patience is this intuitive sense that it's okay. Despite what our particular stories we have about what's wrong or how the moment could be better, what we're anticipating that might be problematic, sure it's fine now, but But if we don't look, you know, if we don't look beyond those stories and we don't taste that sense of freedom, you know, the Buddha. And another thing we can discern right here and now is a kind of strength. It's the second quality of patience that I've been talking about. Patience as a kind of strength that helps us endure what is unpleasant or difficult to endure. And this strength, and it can be quite strong, this strength really comes out of an understanding, something real, again, not theoretical, but a real understanding that reactivity doesn't help. It's like if you're sitting and pain starts to rise in your sitting practice, And you're not going to get up and leave for whatever reason. So you're there to the bell rings. And you can see that getting tight around the pain doesn't work. So we can, patience, you know, is that strength that I'm willing to be with the discomfort. I'm willing to be with the way that it is. Because any movement away from acceptance makes this intolerable. Have you had that experience with physical pain or emotional pain? It's like, the only thing that makes this moment tolerable is a full turning toward what's going on. And if the mind attempts any strategy of control or fixing, it gets really bad really fast. And this, this is a real strength in our life when we realize that the most efficient way forward in life is to include everything. Not to cultivate distraction or denial. It's like more 
challenging when we're attempting to be in denial of something, distracted from something. And then a third aspect, so we have recognizing patience, realizing patience as a kind of um, peace or beauty, something beautiful. Recognizing patience as a strength. And third is recognizing patience as a fearlessness or courageousness. And this comes from maybe even a deeper insight, slowly, gradually develops from deeper insights that whatever the mind projects or constructs that is monstrous and scary, like this sit is going to go on forever, or I don't know what's going on in the world. Everybody I love could be dead right now and I wouldn't know because here I am on this retreat. Or whatever the mind might construct, nobody likes me. That could be the most horrendous thing. I'm no good at this practice. I've given my whole life to this practice and I'm no good at it. That can be like a big monster for us. So this kind of patience understands that whatever the mind constructs, no matter how compelling, that it's just that. It's just a construction of the mind. So this aspect of patience arises out of a real wisdom. Uh, the, The Thai forest masters would talk about the difference between the space of the mind and the activity of the mind, and not confusing those two things. So it, it allows for a lot of freedom from the activity of mind. The activity of mind is basically free to do whatever it does, project this, construct that. But the space of the mind, the silence of the mind, the empty mind, remains unstained, fearless, Thoughts are just thoughts. I mentioned, I think yesterday, about humility, that this quality is a sense of humility, but not humility in a weak sense, like I don't know what's going on, but but a, a broader, deeper humility that understands that whatever I think is going on isn't it. So if I have this thought that I'm in a lot of trouble, that that doesn't quite capture, can never really capture, or I'm totally on top of it. So this humility is just uh, appreciating that whatever, you know, the ups and downs, the dramas, the highs and lows, however it unfolds for us, there can be the steady, patient, wise presence. Because we're not, we're not sort of tying ourselves to that roller coaster. You know, the roller coaster of what our mind is projecting. We're not trying to stop the mind from having thoughts that I'm doing really great right now or my life really sucks right now or I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. Just let the mind have its thoughts and opinions. There's nothing wrong with that. But we're holding it more lightly, day by day, year by year with practice. Just more 
of that sense of space as opposed to feeling tied to what the mind says or how the mind looks. And then the last maybe perspective or aspect of patience is more of a direct experience of freedom. like it's a very real freedom not to have to react. More than uh, a restraint. It's not like we're restraining. It's like the mind is no longer in that ball ballpark. It's not playing that game. So real freedom, initial freedom is the capacity to refrain from doing what we know is not helpful. But there's a deeper freedom where the mind doesn't feel compelled. It's like, you know, you wiggle something in front of a cat, like our cat at home, you know, you you just either do your little movement with your fingers or you move your toes under the blankets and it, and it can't help itself, you know, especially if you're persistent. <laughs> the cat eventually, it's like it gets fixated on the movement and uh, that probably genetic conditioning gets triggered and it starts to be this hunter or at least a pouncer and... Uh, but we can, with practice, uh, we don't have to be seduced by external conditions. So this is a more liberated version of patience. Normally we think of patience, and this is why we have to sort of purify the word for ourselves, you know, as sort of a grim endurance. But we want to understand the full blossoming of the word patience or the practice of patience to just a experience of freedom. So the heart, the mind doesn't feel afflicted by the life that's unfolding. This is from Sharon Salzberg's book, um, Heart as wide as the world, right at the beginning in the introduction, she, she says, As we give ourselves to the practice of mindfulness, wisdom, and compassion, our habitual patterns of attachment and separation are seen for what they are, painful and unnecessary mistakes. This realization lifts the heaviness from our hearts so that we can encounter anything without getting deeply lost in fear, anger, or clinging. We can encounter anybody without being engulfed in feelings of estrangement or separation. We can begin to live in a way that enables our hearts to include rather than exclude, to open rather than constrict, to go forward with the energy of loving kindness (coughs) rather than be held back by the illusion of separation. We can begin to live in a way that is commensurate with our own extraordinary potential, the potential of being truly awake. This potential is the truth 
that lies at the center of the Buddhist life and teaching. This truth is also our truth. The unbounded heart of the Buddha can be our own as well. And this is important with, I think, all of the paramis, these beautiful qualities of heart, like patience is one of them. To understand it both as a means, like a training, we're training in patience, but also an expression of real freedom. And to have a... to uh, challenge any sense of limitation about qualities like kindness, or patience, or generosity, or strength, resoluteness, or energy. It's so easy for us to tell ourselves story. I'm a, I tend to be a low energy person, or I, you know, I'm stingy. I'm an impatient person, impulsive. It's, you know, it's useful to notice when we're being impulsive or impatient, to notice that. But we don't want to construct a story that then we feel obliged to inhabit, that I'm an impatient person or I'm stingy. We actually want to, one way or another, you know, in a way that works for us, we have to have a sense of aspiration or goal. That's why, you know, if you look at human culture, there's always been some idea, whether it's the Buddha or, you know, some idea that represents the potential of our heart. And it gets confusing because a lot of times we miss that connection, like that metaphor or that myth or that sort of archetypal person, being, is actually representing something that's possible for us. Instead, we think it's not possible for us, and that's the person that's holy, and oh, woe, me, you know, never to be like that, ever. And we can feel so wise thinking that, you know, how limited we are. Like that's like being humble or something. But if we were really honest, if we were attentive and, uh, and honest about what we saw, we would notice there are times when our heart was truly generous and truly patient and truly clear and truly strong or resolute. So that's just interesting, you know, that why not now sort of begs the question. And, you know, we see it in other people, too. Like, um, some of you know that Debbie Norgard has, uh, her cancer has come back, and it's just dealing with a lot of difficulty. Many of you have friends that are involved in medical crises of one sort or another, and dealing with things that it's really hard for us to fathom having to deal with. And we think, no way I could handle that. You know, I just, you know, somebody sticking a big needle into my lung and pulling out the fluid, you know, and doing that every two weeks or however often that is, you know, just no way or no way that I could 
you know, you can just name so many things. And yet we see these people who are ordinary people like ourselves, that in moments, not always, but in moments they respond in extraordinary ways that are, it's truly astounding to see the kind of equanimity, the kind of buoyancy and joy that they're able to manifest even in the really difficult circumstances of their lives where there isn't that much hope in the way that we normally think of like a rosy future possible in front of us. So we have to we have to be careful about how we unconsciously limit what's possible for ourselves. It's really nice actually, you know, without being deluded by stories of like Ajahn Chah and you know, other teachers that we tend to put on a big pedestal. But on the other hand, it's useful to have symbols or ideas or stories that represent what is actually possible for us and that we make that connection that that's exactly the purpose of the story is to not fall into a fixed view about some limited notion of myself or some limited notion of this heart that it's not really capable of joy or not really capable of energy being enlivened in life, not really capable of patience or forgiveness. I remember one of the first times I um, I was feeling frustrated in this concentration retreat and, uh, and some old doubts were coming up you know, I can't do this. Never been good at concentration. <laughs> and uh, and I remember, you know, I I really stuck with it, and uh, and my mind at some point really settled down. And I remember just crying, like I was so grateful that I, because I had believed it wasn't possible, I had really kind of taken that bait, you know, that conditioned bait that, well, not for me, I'm not good enough, or some version of that. And then uh, to see, oh, it is possible. It was so, it felt so good to see, and it, it just opened up so, well, if this is possible, what else is possible? You know, and then with that kind of open-mindedness, confidence, not confident that we are something, but that things are possible, our way of making effort changes, you know, because now we engage the activities, like of Dharma practice, with a real open-minded enthusiasm. Well, let's see what's possible. Let's see what can be set in motion. I think this is really important. And it, and it really... Um, speaks to, I think, the right way to talk about the paramis. And I didn't really mention this in the Buddhist studies class that ended recently where we took eight weeks, I think, to look at these ten beautiful qualities of the heart. Generosity, integrity, truthfulness, renunciation, wisdom, kindness, equanimity, resoluteness, patience, Equanimity, equanimity, thanks. Energy, <laughs> energy too. Energy, you said equanimity. Oh, I said equanimity, thanks. 
So these ten beautiful qualities of heart. Um, the idea, I mean, this is part of the legend or myth, but these ideas are really useful as archetypes for what's actually happening for us. So whether how literally you want to take it, you know, you can just experiment with. But the idea through incalculable lifetimes that whatever this thing is, this mind stream is, it has been developing the paramis. And it it, it exists as a, a real force, an unstoppable force. And the fact that this force has got in, gotten us all here on retreat, human beings who are interested in using their mind to be interested in the way it is, this is, in a sense, the result of this force. And it's like really useful to look at our lives and to see how generosity has asserted itself, how patience has asserted itself, resoluteness, energy, kindness, truthfulness, wisdom, how these different beautiful qualities of heart have just asserted themselves in different ways. You know, we can look at the other people we're around and it didn't, in those moments, at least assert itself in their lives. And you really see that this is, you know, this force, just like you notice with your siblings, like, God, we all kind of grew up in the same place, but we're different. So there are some forces at work in our lives that we don't understand, you know, they come from somewhere. So in, Buddhist, in Buddhism, we talk about the force of the paramis and how useful how functional it is to reflect on them it's like there is something afoot in our lives and i'm not saying it's all good (laughs) but there are some good things afoot in our life that that have some energy that have some momentum and then the question is well what are we going to do about that are we going to neglect it or are we going to feed it and develop it and keep it going set it forth and if we not only see it as a force in our mind, in the heart, but see its potential, like, like the sea, like the possibility of generosity, like how beautiful and liberating it would be not to be stingy, not to be afraid of not having enough. That would be really nice. I mean, we've all run across people who seem to have that parami, that quality highly developed, and it's really amazing to be around people who are generous not afraid to keep giving, finding joy and giving giving everything away. Or find people who are really resolute. You know, they see something that's skillful and they can just apply themselves to it. And they don't easily give up. Or people who are really patient and can endure and find joy. And they, you know, they're able, like part of that patience, that first aspect of patience is having enough faith that even though this moment doesn't feel okay, I have faith that it is okay. So we keep looking, like how to be okay with the way that it is. We don't assume because everything on the surface of the moment is really difficult to bear that it's really not okay. We assume it is okay, that somehow this is okay too. 
That's an aspect of patience. And when we're around those people, it's inspiring. You know, that they don't let their mind give in to negativity. They just don't do that. They don't have faith in negativity. They don't see the value in giving into that. Joseph uh, Goldstein wrote a chapter in his book, Insight Meditation, about this aspect of the paramis, you know, as this force. He even brings in the devas. He said, you know, you can, you can imagine this force in different ways, basically whatever way works for you. You know, whether you think about it as some archetypal force that's not even yours, which is useful, you know, you don't want to make it too personal. And I do that sometimes, you know, I'll bring to mind these characters like Deepama, some of you know about Deepama, who was one of Joseph Goldstein's and Sharon Salzberg and other Western teachers, teacher, uh, Indian woman, um, who was just a real saint. And, um, you know, and I'll bring her to mind. I'll, I'll imagine, you know, just from the stories I've heard of her beautiful qualities of her heart and mind. And then I'll, you know, once you have a story, I mean, this is the great thing about stories. So we have a stories about Deepama. There's a couple books about Deepama. You can read them. And then you have your own stories about Deepama. You see pictures of her. And then you'll be able to imagine Deepama. And then once we have these stories, then it's easy. It's an easy riff on the story to imagine that these qualities, if they're available for someone like Deepama, they're also available for us. And what actually separates us from the sort of highly developed qualities, how are we so sure that that is somehow inaccessible to us? Like, where does that arrogance come from? That, oh, that kind of kindness, you know, I can't, I can't do that. Or that kind of generosity, or that kind of patience being, you know. I had a sort of a scary image in my mind when I was young about being trapped in some life, selling insurance with a partner that I didn't love in some suburb that I despised <laughs> with a white picket fence. And, and uh, I remember being so frightened by whatever, however my mind conceived of what is ordinary, you know, and I, I'm not saying it was a very sophisticated view of things, but for me it, it was scary. And it was, it's like that, uh, you know, being able to draw on something so that our heart isn't tied to the conditions, however they might unfold for us. I mean, that's what we're interested in. You know, whatever our particular version of nightmare might be. So that, because uh, otherwise... We're in a defensive stance in life. Like, okay, it's okay as long as it, it's the way I like it or want it to be. But we can't really relax. So we want to aspire to a freedom or happiness that's unconditioned. And we want to, you know, to hold this vision, to hold this aspiration we need to use things like the paramis or patience and not only as a skillful means to sort of deal with our knee pain, but also 
to hold up to the nth degree. So like we bring up things in our mind and when we hear things in the news or hear about a friend who's dealing with divorce and cancer and, you know, bad neighbors and just sort of hanging out in that space. And it's like, oh, well, could I be okay if that all happened to me? Could I bear that? Could I be happy? Alive, engaged. Could I learn from that? Use it, you know, transmute it into the into the fuel of awakening. I mean, that's really our relationship. What uh, we need this relationship with Dhamma, the way it is. You know, it's like a fuel for the awakening. It's Dhamma, the way it is, that evokes and uh, and clarifies Buddha, this freedom. We need the messiness of the world. We need how it doesn't work exactly. Let me read a little bit from Joseph's book. This chapter he calls Grace or Help Along the Way. He says, I feel that the paramis, these ten perfections of the heart, are one, are one great influence in our experience that corresponds to the sense of grace, not as a theological doctrine or metaphysical concept, but as something we can really feel and know. And he quotes a line from Dylan Thomas, uh, the force that through the green fuse drives the flower. I remember reading something when I read this earlier today that Jack Hornfield wrote. I don't know if he was quoting somebody or not, but he talks about that force that causes grass to grow in the cracks in the sidewalks. And it's like there is this unstoppable force of goodness, you know, whether you want to call it the paramis or not. There is a force uh, that we can recognize and learn to trust that is this force or is this movement toward awakening. He goes on a little later, he says, Parami does not come from some being outside of ourselves. Rather, it comes from our own gradually accumulated purity. A Buddhist understanding of reliance on a higher power would not necessarily involve reliance on some supernormal being. It is rather a reliance on these forces of purity in ourselves that are outside of our small, constricted sense of I, and that constitute the source of grace in our lives. And I think this is especially important when, like in on retreat, when you start getting impatient or getting irritated. You know, it's so easy to be irritated if you're chronically sleepy or chronically uncomfortable with physical sensations or chronically anxious about something in your life. And so instead of feeling like that has to go away in order for me to have this deeper sense of what's possible, it's more like the fact that the heart doesn't need that to change that's inspiring. You see what a switch that is. Like as soon as the heart can even conceive of like that being okay, the chronic anxiety, the chronic discomfort, the chronic sleepiness. 
Like that itself is a beautiful thing. Wow. You know, the heart can imagine that this doesn't have to change. Well, it just begs that question. Well, what else doesn't have to change in my life? Maybe nothing has to change. Maybe it's already okay. Everything is already okay. As messy, incomplete, limited as it is. In the long course of evolution, in this lifetime and perhaps over many lifetimes, we have generated a power of purity in our mind by acts of generosity and loving kindness, by deepening understanding and wisdom. This power becomes the karmic force that brings blessings in our life. So our own inner development, not an external agent, brings us this grace. Develop and strengthen the paramis within you. And from that source, enjoy the blessings that result. He gives an example of his own life. He uses this word, this Pali word, the moja, which is, he translates as the essence of dhamma. He talks about how when we are able to recognize that more and more often and really trust it, it like takes over our life. And you probably have had times, I certainly know times, and this is not such a rarefied experience, where some force of goodness, whether it's just a really pure joy that has no uh, need, like just joy that wants to be generous, that wants to do, but not for some self-idea, but just do what's good to do. You see this sometimes like at... uh, volunteer events at Common Ground, like where people are working on the yard, or I remember the, just the energy around building the fence at Common Ground, but there's been so many times um, where there's just such a palatable force of goodness at play. And you ask people, you know, they will talk about it. I mean, it's, it's like really obvious, and it sort of carries everybody along. And people, even though they may be physically tired, they end up feeling more alive, more energized at the end of whatever that was. This is why it attracts people to spiritual communities is because it's easier to enter this stream of goodness, to fall into it and to feel sort of carried along. And what a relief it is. People feel this at times, you know, raising kids, maybe not most of the time. But some of the time, like where there's always, you know, one thing after another, but there are some days or some hours where you hear this. Parents talk about how enlivening, how much joy they have and just taking care of the kid or kids or people with their jobs or taking care of sick people. So Joseph talks about uh, that feeling and at time being in Burma and, and really sick and losing weight and yet the practice just wouldn't stop even though he could he even remembered falling over several times in a sit just because he was so weak but it's like the mind being interested in the present moment just kept going just kept going because of that force of goodness that was sort of sweeping him along and this is ultimately where we have to go with this practice because 
this ego-based sense of me doing the practice is pretty limited, is pretty feeble. We really have to enter the stream, the, the power of the accumulated goodness to carry us along, to get us up in the morning, to allow us to give a little bit more when the moment is asking us to give a little bit more, to stand up and speak our truth when that's what the moment's asking us, but we're afraid to do that, or you know, whatever the moment might be asking us. I feel that way in terms of my job at Common Ground. You know, a lot of people, um, you know, just sometimes are worried about uh, my schedule and things like that, as I am too. But I really see it as a, like uh, an experiment. And uh, if it's an ego thing, then the work and the activity is exhausting and debilitating. But when it's a surrender and, a, and an act of generosity, it's really enlivening. And it's just so interesting to look at my life in that way. And I'm sure it's same, similar for many of you in terms of uh, the different things that ask for your attention, ask for your energy. Joseph reads a wonderful poem. I'm guessing that most of you have heard it many times by Galway Canal. Uh, St. Francis in the Sow, he has in this little chapter, this four-page chapter. This is the poem. The bud stands for all things, even for those things that don't flower. For everything flowers from within of self-blessing. Though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness. To put a hand on the brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch it is lovely until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. As St. Francis put his hand on the creased forehead of the sow and told her in words and in touch, blessings of the earth on the sow, and the sow began remembering all down her thick length from the earthen snout all the way through the fodder and slops to the spiritual curl of the tail, from the hard spininess spiked out from the spine, down through the great broken heart, to the sheer blue milk and dreaminess, spurting and shuddering from the fourteen teats into the fourteen mouths sucking and blowing beneath them, the long, perfect loveliness of sound. So that's something to take to bed with us tonight. You know, there you are. Especially, you know, you might feel that has, uh, Joseph Goldstein uses the word demoja, you know, that force of wakefulness as you're lying there. This is often the case on retreats, maybe not the first, after the first full day. But uh, generally, after a few days, you know, you kind of want to go to bed, but the force of the practice doesn't want to go to bed, just wants to keep seeing things as they are. And so one of the things you can reflect on there in bed, one of the great things to do before you go to bed, is to open your mind to this force of loveliness, this beauty, this power in our lives, sort of carrying this mind stream forward. You know, at some point, and we don't understand it, and I don't think it's 
useful to, to try to nail it down in any way, but just in a general way, at some point, our heart turned the corner from strategies of grasping to some interest in letting go of grasping. You know, that was a huge turning point, gradual probably for most of us. may have been incalculable lifetimes ago when that turning point happened, or maybe it was yesterday or today. And then, and then just sort of following that new instinct that the way is the way of letting go, not the way of grasping, of fighting, of struggling. And then for however long, you know, as best we can, watering that tendency in the mind towards releasing, letting go, letting be, loving instead of holding, giving. And to call on it and to even, you know, a lot of times, like you have to be playful with the story because if you have a strong sense, yeah, but my life hasn't, you know, I don't think I have those positive currents in my life. Then we have to, like I said earlier about Deepama and other saints or other ideas of those beautiful qualities, we have to ask ourselves, how do we know there's any hard boundary between the force of goodness that the Buddha set in motion or Jesus Christ or Mother Teresa or whoever you bring to mind? How do I know that that force of goodness there that seems real to me, as much as I can tell, that somehow there is a clear, hard boundary that somehow doesn't allow this heart to access, to sort of connect and ride that wave. How do we know that? You know, it's not emphasized as much in Theravada Buddhism uh, about uh, sort of guru-student relationship. But there's a lot of this in other traditions about uh, using the mind to connect to beneficent forces. In Theravada Buddhism, it's much more through devas, the celestial beings, which hasn't really been brought to the West, even though it's very much a part of uh, this tradition in Buddhism. This whole idea of many different realms the human realm is relatively close to the bottom of all these many, many realms. And in the more exalted, more expanded, beautiful realms, these beings naturally abide in states of compassion and love and benevolence. So even if we don't know with certainty, it doesn't hurt to keep an open mind and ask for help. Maybe there are really wise, powerful beings that are more than willing to help us. <laughs> and just that idea, whether it's true or not, is skillful, which is the important point. It's a skillful idea to uh, imagine there are beneficent forces supporting the, the good intentions in this mind, protecting us, guiding us. Now, you can get obsessive about... We can get obsessive about anything. <laughs> we can get obsessive about Nibbana. It doesn't help. But to be... To sort of be arrogantly sure that there isn't anything also doesn't help. So one way or another, creatively, we have to open our mind to 
like this potential of patience, this blossoming of patience, even if it looks like an old pig, you know, maybe patience is something quite extraordinary, something we can't even fathom, you know, just the beginnings of our understanding of patience. Maybe it's uh, this amazing strength and presence that will really uh, be the protection, the safety we have been looking for, the wisdom that we've been looking for. One of the things that make patience so uh, uh, trustworthy is what do we build patience on? Like in any moment of our life, we, we build the patience right out of the raw materials of the moment. It's like we're being patient with this. So it, it's a really a connecting quality of the mind. We're not theoretically patient. We're patient with the way that it is. You see how, I mean, that's imprinted in our mind, I think, even with a limited understanding of patience. We understand the reason why it's such a wholesome quality, it implies that there doesn't need to be a disconnect from the way it is, but we can be patient with the way that it is. We can, it can be inclusive, we can include the way that it is. It's a contentment or a peaceful abiding even a quality of joy. As I mentioned yesterday, you know, it's this combination of understanding impermanence and understanding karma. Like, this will change, but it cannot be other yet. It can't be other than what it is yet. So that's the karma piece. Like, it's going to change, but it will change when the causes and conditions are ripe for it to change but it will change. But I trust karma. Like, me wanting it to change is not the cause for it to change. It's the cause for me to be suffering, attached or caught in wanting it to be other than what it is. This really helps us understand the kind of effort we need in the practice. You know, the Buddha uses this word, apamada, gets translated as heedfulness or vigilance, which I think for us often has a hard quality. I like wholeheartedness. Or to think about a vigil is like watching, sort of, you know, uh, I think about my mom dying last year, you know, and we held vigil in her room for the last 14 days or so. And uh, it, fortunately, because it didn't seem she was suffering too much, uh, it was just, you know, it was a lot, a lot of downtime, you know, just hanging out. And this is the same thing with our practice, you know, being vigilant doesn't mean that we're tight, it just means we keep showing up, we're not going away, we're not going anywhere. We're really invested in being there. But we don't really have anything to do. I mean, when there is something to do, we do it. But a lot of time there isn't anything to do. But we're not going to go anywhere. We're going to stay there. This is, a, I think, a better sense of the word vigilant than some kind of hard presence. 
And this is the energy of patience. It's, you know, patience, as I, I was saying a moment ago, is really about including or being connected. And that's really the heart of it. It's, it's really about staying connected. And then really nothing else. It's like not losing that thread of connection, that respect or that valuing the way that it is. There's that famous interaction between the Buddha and a Dewa. The Buddha taught these celestial beings evidently late at night. They'd come down from their celestial realms because even beings in the celestial realms don't, if they had the wisdom of a Buddha, they wouldn't be in celestial realms. They would have realized full and complete Nibbana, the release from conditioned realms. Even the celestial realms in the Buddhist cosmology are conditioned realms. Even the highest, most ethereal devas are also conditioned beings. And you can go from being, you know, an exalted god to being a lowly human being or even lower, according to this cosmology. And you don't need to believe this stuff. But the idea is that things just keep recycling over and over and over until the understanding deepens. So anyway, the celestial beings would come down, as it said at least, and get some teachings from the Buddha. And one did, and asked the Buddha, how did you cross over the flood? And the flood, as most of you know, is a metaphor for the, you know, the movement of greed and aversion in the mind, just the endless churning of anxiety and fear and desire and mind. How did you cross over this flood? And the Buddha responded, I crossed over without pushing forward and without staying in place. When I pushed forward, I was whirled about. When I stayed in place, I sank. So I crossed over the flood without pushing forward and without staying in place. So I think this, this has something to say about patience. You know, we, I think we understand why pushing forward isn't going to work because it involves greed or aversion. But it, we can imagine patience as a sort of standing in place. But the Buddha said, when I stood in place, I sank. So this is like a reminder that patience isn't resignation. It's active. You know, so patience, with patience, we're actively connecting. And a lot of people say this in their practice. You know, they say, you know, I was with it. I, I'm with the pain. I'm with the di- discomfort. I'm with the agitation but it doesn't go away. But the thing is, we need to be with it without wanting it to go away. The wanting it to go away is a barrier. It actually keeps us from being with it. We have to be with it as if it's not going to go away. We have to be so trusting in the way that it is because we know it will go away. That's what helps us get close to it. But this isn't the time for it to go away. And we don't know when it will go away, but we know it will go away. And that helps us to get really close to what's sometimes difficult to be with. We know it will change. Nothing lasts. There's nothing that lasts. So it will change. So I think this is teaching us like that's that 
that place of connection where we're not sinking, we're not standing in place and sinking, because we're actively connecting. The mind is actively interested and fearless. Fearless in terms of how long it will be this way, not looking for it to end, not knowing if it's going to increase or decrease, but at the same time not resorting to control or manipulation. Eckhart Tolle talks about this um, in a similar way, I think, to the way that the uh, Thai forest Ajans talk about it. You know, they talk about the mind, the space of the mind, and the activity of the mind. And, uh, and that you need to understand the difference between the space of the mind and the activity of our lives. The activity of thought, the activity of sensation, the activity of sight, sound, smell, and taste. The activity of experience and the space of the mind. In, Aj- uh, in uh, Eckhart Tolle, uh, so he's not really a Buddhist teacher, but he definitely teaches the Dharma, the way things are. He says, you can improve your life situation, but you cannot improve your life. So there is this activity, and there is some play, some room for us to engage the activity of our minds, the activity of our lives, the circumstances. It's not just about standing still. But we can improve the life itself, or the space of the mind itself. That just is. It isn't something that comes and goes. So in Buddhism we call that the unconditioned, and then the conditioned. And we tend, because there is some play with the conditioned realm, like our experience right now, it does matter if we sit for two hours without moving or get up and stretch. Right? So these choices make a difference. It does matter what we let our mind dwell on. You know, If I let my mind dwell on my resentments, I'm going to get really tight in my mind and body after some time. But if I redirect my mind, you know, I'll avoid that tension. But as clever, as skillful, competent as we get in the, in the places where we do have some play in our conditioned life, none of that affects the life itself, the space of the mind, the unconditioned itself. And this is the, uh, you know, patience really illuminates this by using patience to temporarily leave the conditioned realm alone. Right? That's what patience is. It's not saying we're never going to respond to the conditioned realm. In fact, patience on the level of the conditioned realm, patience is a response. It's like my response, and it's a wholehearted response. My response right now is just to leave you be. You know, we're sitting, we're feeling the body, and we're being patient with the body. In other words, we're just letting the body be. We're deciding, we're actively deciding not to move the body. But by by having that attitude about the conditioned realm, to just let it be, it sets up the insight into the unconditioned. If we're always obsessively concerned with the conditioned realm, we'll guaranteed we'll always miss the insight into the unconditioned. It's only when we're willing for periods of time 
to just let things be, that we can begin to awaken to what's not the conditioned realm. You could call this the nature of the mind, or as Eckhart Tolle calls it, life itself. It doesn't matter what we call it. What matters is, are we interested in what's behind all this conditioned unfolding, the activity of our life? So we'll talk more about this tomorrow night, but let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. In a direct way for a few seconds, we can contemplate what's behind the activity of the body and mind, the space of the present moment. by leaving everything alone, the space of the present moment can come into view. Walking practice now, and we'll come back at nine o'clock, and we'll do the uh, metta chant. It's not the traditional metta chant; it's a version that's taken from uh, Buddha Gosa's Path of Purification, I believe. But it's a traditional thing we've been doing on retreats for a long time. It's really beautiful, so you might want to have that available. It's on the back side of the Refuges and Precepts. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.